The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for listening. This week it's a Titian special. We're taking an in-depth look at the new exhibition at the National Gallery in London. Before we start, a reminder that you can read the Art Newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the Art Newspaper and from there you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, for the first time in around 440 years, six paintings by the Venetian Renaissance master Titian, known as the Poesia, which were made for Philip II, King of Spain, in the 1550s and 60s, are being reunited at the National Gallery in London. Lucian Freud described two of the six paintings as simply the most beautiful pictures in the world. A seventh picture, intended to be sent to Philip but never delivered, completes the set of masterpieces in the National Gallery's exhibition. The paintings feature mythological scenes inspired by Ovid's narrative poem, Metamorphoses. Until last year, this gathering of the Poesia could not have happened because institutions in London and Boston wouldn't lend the works, but now they're together on the National Gallery's walls. So before I looked at the paintings in depth with the show's curator, Matthias Wivel, I spoke to Gabriele Finaldi, the director of the National Gallery, about how they achieved what was once thought impossible. Gabriele, until last year, we didn't think this was possible. What happened? Well, in some ways, you're right. This was the sort of the impossible show, the the, the show you dream of being able to do, but know that you can't. Um, What changed that was fundamentally that the uh, the museum in Boston, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, decided they could lend their painting of Europa and the Bull. Uh, That is a picture that's never been lent. Uh, since it went to America in the early 20th century. So that was the first important step. And that's what led us to really kind of expand our ambition and see if we could do the whole set. And then, you're right, the key moment was back in November last year when the Wallace Collection trustees uh, agreed that they could change the long-standing tradition of not lending, not being able to lend, um, and they told us that they could lend the Perseus Andromeda. Um, there were leaps of joy in the National Gallery when that news came through, you can imagine. Yeah. And for you, as current director of the National Gallery, previously you were deputy director at the Prado, these are two institutions which have very different collections in lots of ways, but one of the things that really unites them is that they have incredible holdings of Titian. So can you say something about what Titian means to you, having been in these two august institutions with amazing collections? In some ways you could say that... um, you know, Titian is a sort of embodiment of painting. Um, it sounds like a grand thing to say, but um, particularly with my former Prado hat on, um, you know, the tradition of painting in Spain um, is very much uh, based on Titian. Titian is considered the kind of the foundation on which the tradition of painterly painting uh, is based. And you only need to think of El Greco. Um, Velasquez himself but also Murillo and Rubens who in a way was a kind of Spanish painter as well so all those artists who paint in a certain way where you know the touch is very important where um, you know the broken stroke uh, the intensity of colour the sort of storytelling uh, all of them see Titian as their fountainhead and the National Gallery too of course is very strong in uh, those artists Rubens and Titian in, in particular so in many ways we're 
you know, we owe Titian a lot uh, uh, in these two uh, institutions. It was one of the reasons why it was possible to think of doing the show, because there's such a good dynamic between the National Gallery London and the Prado Madrid. One of the things that, I've, as I've been talking to people about this show, is, you know, occasionally people will say to me, is it sort of a bit... Is it a bit academic, you know? Isn't, is, isn't it sort of a, a, a curator's dream, but is it a public dream? I think when you're in the space, you realise that it's just a room full of stonking paintings. <laughs> it's a very serious academic project, there's no doubt about that, and um, those who want to see all the research that's been done and is being done on these pictures, and it's very, very interesting, um, it's in the catalogue. But I think you only need to step in the space, as you say, to see that this is a, an exhibition to really relish and really enjoy. You don't need to be an expert in the Renaissance. You don't need to be an expert in um, Ovidian poetry. Um, you really need to stand in front of the picture and just enjoy the sheer glory of the storytelling, of the richness of the colour, of the uh, amazing way in which he composes his, uh, his pictures. Um, they really are pictures for the senses, you know, starting with your uh, sense of sight but then all your senses get engaged and uh, you, you really feel enveloped by these stories. Indeed. One really striking element of this is that you've chosen to stage it in the, in the main galleries. We're standing here in daylight, and it seems to me that this is a crucial factor. If you're going to show Titian's, that, that you know, famous colour of Titian, to have daylight assist you in that is quite important, isn't it? I do think that's very important because it's very important to think about the circumstances in which the paintings were made and painting is all about light and colour and if you want to approximate uh, the conditions uh, in which these pictures were made and in which these pictures were seen uh, then it needs to be natural light preferably a lot of sunlight that we don't get much of uh, in, in uh, March and April in, in London but there have been moments even this morning uh, when you know the clouds moved uh, uh, across the sky, uh, let the sunlight in, and it really is glorious. You almost hear angels sing. <laughs> There's an intensity. Uh, 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 you know, the, the, the blues become more blue, the, the, the pinks become pinker. Um, you know, everything seems to sort of come alive uh, in in, uh, in natural light. Obviously, those coming in the evening will see it in natural light, with it in, in artificial light, which looks fantastic too. Um, but there we are. We've, we've got a bit of sunlight right now, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm just looking at the rape of, of Europa, um, and uh, you know, look at that flash of red in the drape that's flying across the sky, and that big bit of blue above the mountains uh, on the left. It is just stunning. And that was cleaned, wasn't it, for this? So, I mean, it, you know, it, it's an international project in all sorts of ways, and one of the ways is a sort of conservation project. Exactly. Well. So there's been a lot of historical work uh, done. We've been looking at uh, documents. We've um, presented uh, all the letters relating to the series of the Posey in translation uh, in the catalogue. Uh, there's also a lot of technical work been done, so we now understand much better how Titian worked. Titian was an artist who, when he came up with a good invention, sort of kept using it and there are a couple of pictures in the show where you know we could see him having used an earlier composition but reworking it doing it slightly differently um, and of course the cleaning as you say so it's the Boston picture it's the, the, the Europa and the Bull Rape of Europa which has been uh, cleaned specifically for the show but effectively um, you know the, 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 the Titian uh, from the Prado the Venus and Adonis uh, the Danai from the Wellington collection those were cleaned when I was at the Prado that's about I suppose eight years ago now so they're all in really good nick, actually. I mean, you know, obviously these are paintings which are, you know, best part of uh, 500 years old, so, yeah. so that they, there's bits of wear and tear, but they, they, they seem so luminous still. Yes, and also, you know, when, when, you, when you do a show, obviously you need to think about making 
the pictures look their best and the artists look um, his best in this case. So with the picture from the Wallace collection, which everybody knows is quite a, a damaged picture, but in the new frames that we've made for all the pictures and with very sensitive uh, lighting and situating it within this kind of series context, I think the picture has never looked better. We're a bit euphoric in, in the interview so far, but I have to ask you a, a trickier question. Every, everybody is con- thinking about coronavirus right now. This is a major show. It's taken years of preparation. It's uh, a major part of your programme for this year. There is the potential, museums are closing all over Europe, it, that, that, that you will have to interrupt the public's experience of this. Can you tell me what is the current position on coronavirus? So the current position is um, business as usual. Um, as a national institution, we're uh, listening very carefully to what the uh, official advice from uh, government is. Um, we are being constantly briefed, uh, and we have to be very attentive to that, uh, clearly. Uh, we have heard the news. You know, We've just heard that the Irish museums are closed, the Spanish museums are closed, the Italian museums are closed. Uh, as you know, we have a show which is currently in Japan, uh, which was... Uh, put up on the wall, beautifully lit, beautifully presented and couldn't open uh, that still hasn't opened yet so we're in a very fluid uh, situation uh, we have contingency plans here at the gallery um, for the time being it's business as usual and I'm delighted that we've been able to open this show and I hope that we'll be able to uh, enable lots of people to come and see it One last question Artemisia is due to open in a few weeks time and obviously that has pictures coming from Italy do you know yet whether those pictures will be able to travel from Italy? So we're in the planning phase to bring those pictures uh, over. We're in touch with our um, Italian counterparts. Uh, we're in touch with the transport agencies, um, clearly. Um, it's looking as if things can go uh, ahead, and that's certainly uh, our intention. Um, if the circumstances change, we will, of course, um, let everybody uh, know. We certainly want to do the show. Uh, the catalogue is ready. It's a very beautiful show. We've had spectacular collaboration from all the lenders. It will be a very, very beautiful show. Great. Well, thank you, Gabriele, and good luck with it all. Thank you very much indeed. Before we discuss the paintings, and while we're talking about the coronavirus, here are this week's top news stories on our website. The COVID-19 coronavirus continues to prompt the cancellation of major events and the closure of museums. At TFAF, the old master fair in Maastricht, an art dealer tested positive for coronavirus and the fair was forced to close early. Museums across Europe have closed. Austrian museum directors have decided to close all federal public museums until the end of March. Polish officials announced the closure of their museums for two weeks from the 12th of March. And Spanish museums, including the Prado and Reina Sofia in Madrid, also closed until further notice. Meanwhile, in France, the culture minister, Franck Riester, tested positive for the virus, while some museums are allowing limited visits. The list of closures and postponements is increasing hour by hour, so do keep up to date at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. Four North American museums have cancelled plans to host a major touring exhibition of masterworks from Liechtenstein's princely collections out of apparent concern over the royal family's wartime record. The show, encompassing more than 85 works spanning five centuries, was to have opened at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa on the 5th of June and remained there until the 7th of September before travelling to Seattle, to Fort Worth in Texas and to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. But all four venues have cancelled the show. The National Gallery of Canada said in a statement, after deliberating on new information related to estates in Austria owned by the royal family of Liechtenstein during the Second World War, the National Gallery of Canada decided not to participate. 
The UK Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, confirmed in a budget this week that his government, under Prime Minister Boris Johnson, will establish a £250 million fund to support local museums and neighbourhood libraries. The budget, the first delivered since the UK left the European Union in January, also paves the way for a series of controversial free ports to be built across the country. The £250 million fund was announced in the Conservative Manifesto last November. The money could go some way to filling the gap left by the loss of numerous public libraries over the past three years. In 2018 alone, more than 130 libraries were forced to close due to the Conservative government's austerity drive over the past decade. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com and on the app. Now to those Titian paintings. Made at the height of Titian's powers, they've long been celebrated, among much else, for their virtuosic, expressive painterly techniques, for their dynamic compositions and for their sensual depiction of the female body, all of which, as Gabriele says, profoundly influenced the course of painting over the following centuries. But it's impossible to look at them today and not acknowledge that for all their sensuality, they also depict and even celebrate the gods' violence against women, with scenes of abduction and enchainment. In a video accompanying the show, the classicist Mary Beard addresses this question. There's a lot of difficulty now, both about Ovid's poem and about Titian's dialogue with Ovid's poem. I feel much more doubtful, not to say fairly hostile to the view that that means so we shouldn't read it or so we shouldn't look at it. I think unless we face up to what rape is, we're lost. That's what we need to know. There is something we need to look at, see and recognise here. Put these in the cupboard, we're depriving ourselves of something which is going to make us think harder and better and more productively about what sexual violence is. I took a tour of the show's seven works with Matthias Wivel, the National Gallery's curator of 16th century Italian paintings and the curator of the exhibition. And if you want to look at the paintings while we're discussing them, you can see the online slideshow that we've created at theartnewspaper.com. Just follow the podcast tab. Matthias, before we get into the specifics of the works, can we sort of set the scene in terms of the artist and the patron? So, Philip II, who is he... What's his status at the point where the commission begins? So the, the commission begins in, 50, in Augsburg in 1550 to 51. Philip at that point is Prince of Spain, soon to be king. And he knows that. He has been traveling Europe, preparing to eventually be crowned king and at this point potentially even be put forward as Holy Roman Emperor by his father, Charles V. That's right, so Charles V is both Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain. Right, and, and the Netherlands. It's, and the it's Spain and the Netherlands, and colonies across the Atlantic as well. So it's a very big... Charles had an enormous uh, empire. And even what Philip ends up ruling is, is pretty considerable, uh, even though he, he doesn't become emperor. He, he becomes King of Spain and the Netherlands and, and retains dominion of, over parts of Italy and the, the overseas colonies. Right, so he's, he's essentially pretty much the most powerful man in the world even still at least one of them yeah yeah so one of the things about philip ii is in fiction especially but also in some biographies he's presented as this deeply pious austere man and yet surrounding us we have sensuously painted naked women yeah what why is why you know what, what was the reality i suppose of philip ii's character i don't think he was ever that pious. I think he became pious because that was the role he was setting up for himself. The image we have of him as of, of a very severe pious king comes later. 
he's still young at this point, and he's not, I don't think, particularly... I mean, he's religious like everybody, but he's not that invested in that part. Later on, he puts himself forward. He stages himself as the most Catholic king. And I think that, in a way, becomes a self-fulfilling role. You know, he becomes pious because of that. But this is later. This is not at this period. This, at this period, he's young, he's, he's interested in women and having fun and uh, I think he's also ambitious and he is aware that that he has massive responsibility coming so it's, there's a combination of youthful pursuits enthusiasm and ambition and probably a bit of anxiety about the responsibility that awaits him does he just simply inherit Titian from his father, as it were? Because, you know, his father was a great patron of Titian already. So does he just inherit his love of Titian from his dad? He certainly knows Titian's art through the collection, his, his father's pictures uh, from Titian, and also his aunt, Mary of Hungary, who I think was very helpful in educating him about art. She had, I think, more nuanced uh, appreciation of art than Charles. Charles adored Titian and they got along extremely well but he was not somebody who was interested in the range of what Titian could provide so I think in a way yeah, uh, Philip is trying to emulate his father, he takes over the artist that works for his father but I think he also actively pursues a distinct path in terms of what he commissions and that leads to him becoming one of the great great patrons of art in European history. So at this stage Titian is relatively old, isn't he? He's sort of 60 when the, yeah. when, the paint, when the commission begins. Is it too much to say that he was the most famous painter or the most no, esteemed painter? No, I think painter? definitely the most painter and tied with Michelangelo for most famous artist. Right. But definitely the most famous painter in Europe. And working for the highest level of European society. He was working for the Holy Roman Emperor, for the Pope, and so on. You know, like dukes and princes and yeah, it's, it's that level uh, that he's working at. Does the fact that Titian has that status uh, lead to the fact that there is so much freedom in this commission, in the sense that, you know, Philip basically gives him his head, doesn't he? He just says, just go yeah. for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Philip is confident that he will deliver. But it is still, even if, yeah, his status probably plays into it. But I think Philip also senses that this is what Titian wants to do and that if he's going to get the best work from Titian, he should let him do this. I think there's a, that, there's a part... They probably have discussions going on and, and I think Philip understands Titian and what... Just as Titian clearly understands what Philip wants, uh, I think Philip understands better what Titian wants than his father did. And what we get is this sequence of mythological pictures and wonderfully in the room next door here we've got an, an example of a great mythological picture that Titian made in, in the 1520s, yeah. the Bacchus and Ariadne which was from another sequence yes. do you think Titian had that sequence in mind when he made this yes, one? Yes, absolutely again you can't prove it but the fact that this series the Poesia, the Philip series is commissioned at a time when Philip doesn't have a permanent residence he's moving around Europe preparing to become king he doesn't have a permanent residence. It's impossible, I think, that he would have a specific destination in mind for these pictures. Titian describes in a, one of the early letters about the series that he imagines them in a camerino, as a smaller 
gallery, a study, sort of something between a study and a gallery, you know. And but a place for sort of private, yeah, a private experience. Yeah, that's what he's imagining, and I surely what he's imagining is the Camerino d'Alabastro in the Ducal Palace in Ferrara, which he had decorated in the late teens and early twenties. And the, the other the other factor that supports that hypothesis is the fact that he adopts the same format as those pictures for these pictures. At that time, at the time when he was painting in Ferrara or for Ferrara. He was, the format was stipulated because it was site-specific what he was doing. So the format and the subject matter was stipulated. Here, subject matter is not stipulated, and I can't imagine the format is because there's no set destination that we know of. So probably he's thinking of that room. He's imagining that room as he's developing the series. And he has found that this almost square format works well for the kind of picture that he's going to be executing for Philip. Now, you talk about an almost square format. We're standing before a painting now which is in landscape format, but it wasn't. At one right. Stage. This is Danai. This is the first of the pictures that, uh, of the poesia that Titian did for Philip. It may have been started as early as 1551 in Augsburg when they were together. Mm-hmm. I imagine that this was a famous slash infamous picture at this point, uh, or did this composition, Titian had already done one Danai for Alessandro Farnese, the cardinal in Rome, and it, had, it was sort of scandalous and exciting to people who had seen it because it was so sexy. Titian had outdone himself. That's right, because he'd done the Venus of Urbino, which is yeah, the famous yeah. picture in the Uffizi, yeah. and uh, that was seen as a, a hugely sensual image, but he's, he's, he's up the game again. Yeah, yeah, we have a contemporary describing co- that, well, saying that the Urbino Venus looks like a nun compared to Danai. <laughs> so it's, it's that level, and I can imagine Philip saying, can I have one of these? We don't know, but <laughs> it's certainly the first picture Titian does for Philip. Right. And he sends it to him in 1553 from Venice. In, so it gets sent to Spain, because at that point, Philip is back in Spain. Uh, and what is different in this picture from the previous Danai is that it's not originally landscape format. Danai, Danai is landscape. He adapts the landscape composition of Danai to the square format that he's going to use for this series of pictures. And so the pictures we see in front of us, through the vagaries of history and, and so on, has been cut down to like something close to the format of the previous Danai, and indeed of the other replicas Titian did later, including the very beautiful one that's in the Prado that was for a long time thought to be Philip's Danai, but is actually a later picture. So what we know of this picture is that from an early copy, we know what it, that the top part that is now missing had uh, the image of Jupiter in the cloud, the golden cloud from which the the, the golden shower emerges to impregnate Danai, and there was an image of an, his attribute of an eagle. And we know that from an, quite a mediocre, if not to say in, very inferior, <laughs> early copy, Flemish copy. And uh, that was Titian's way of adapting it to the, to the square format, to incorporate those elements. He did reuse the image of Jupiter in later replicas, though not the one in the Prado. But then in the 18th century, this picture gets separated from the others, actually already in the 17th century it's in a different palace, the Buen Retiro, and there it's damaged. And in 1772 it is taken out of the Buen Retiro to the new royal palace in Madrid for conservation and marked as particularly damaged. 
I imagine, we don't know why, but I imagine that it probably had water damage right. at the top. So it was cut down to eliminate the parts that were, that were like beyond salvage. So it wasn't an aesthetic choice as, as, as it might have been? No. I, I'm, it, it seems quite clear that it's, it's restoration. And we even know the guy who did it, Andres de Caleja. Oh, really? uh, <laughs> Amazing. So, um, so that's what's happened to this picture. It's quite a damaged picture. The surface is, is, is damaged across the, you know, the, the painting. And so it's a little harder to appreciate in some ways than the others. Although I think enough remains to see the brilliance of Titian's It is still absolutely spectacular, isn't it? Yeah. So one of the things about this series that's interesting is one, the, the sort of uh, conventional narrative about Titian's painting style is that he just gets looser deca- decade by decade. But one of the things one, one notices looking at these pictures is actually his style shifts even within this sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and within the same painting. It's, right. even, uh, this is an example of that. So Danai is the result of a transfer from a, some kind of cartoon, outline cartoon or something, uh, because it's a figure he'd already designed. So she's, she's transferred, and you can see that in the infrared, uh, infrared reflectogram. You can see the way that the lines, the contour lines, are transfer lines. However, the old woman, which is a new introduction to the iconography here, I mean, it's, it's, no, it's not to the iconography, but to Titian's version, it's a, right. new, it's a new introduction. She is designed, she's underdrawn freehand, and you can see that because the surface is so damaged that you can actually see through it and, and, and see Titian's construction lines, which are freehand underdrawn, not transfer. And the whole figure, what remains of the, of the surface paint, is much more vigorously applied. It's very energetic. Yeah. And it actually kind of looks like Titian a bit, you know, in, in other paintings where he works in a freer idiom than he does it otherwise in this picture. So there's a real contrast there. Really muscular arms yeah. in the old lady. Yeah. yeah, yeah, incredible painting. Right, let's move on to the next one. So, in the year after consigning Danai, Titian sends the second poesia to Philip, and Philip by this time is in London, having recently married Mary Tudor and become King Consort of England. So he becomes King of England, in name at least, before he becomes King of Spain in 1556. And that, that picture is Venus and Adonis, which again is based on a pre-existing composition that Titian has done several times before. So it's again a transfer that he then works up to his most beautiful version of that particular composition. He would subsequently do many of them. It became very popular after he did this one for Philip. It was issued as, a, as several prints right. and, and known, very, became very famous. And it's really the condensation of Titian's ability, the quintessential condensation of Titian's abilities as a storyteller. Uh, yeah, because there's so much in this. It's almost like the whole story in one, in one yeah, image, right? Yeah, yeah. He suggests before and after in one salient moment of departure, of lovers parting at dawn, which is a common literary motif, but which he, adapt- he, he takes the story from Ovid and uses that motif uh, to tell that story and to extend it temporally to before and after, as well as the present. So we see from Venus' nakedness and the fact that she's sitting on her garment, an overturned flagon on the ground... And indeed, the fact that Cupid has collapsed against the tree and is asleep behind them, that this has been preceded by a night of lovemaking. It's quite clear. Adonis is fully dressed and is departing with his hounds, and they're sniffing and pawing at the ground because they're, they are scenting their prey. They're very eager. Yeah, so, so he's, going to, he's, he's going away. We know that. Uh, but Titian captures all this, this salient moment of hesitation, which, you know, depending on the choice he makes, everything changes. Venus is sensing that he's going off to his death. He doesn't understand that. 
she's trying to explain it. She's pleading with him. She's trying to explain what will happen if he leaves. And he's dragging her, like her body is turning as he's, he's dragging it because she's holding, she's holding on to him and he's breaking free of her grip. And that way he looks back and sort of slightly uncomprehending. It really encapsulates the story, that moment of, of misunderstanding between them. This was the pendant to Danai, right? So, yes. So, and, but obviously the most notable thing is in one you have a nude from the front yeah. and in, in this you have this a very, is, very famous painted back. Yeah, yeah very famous. And th- this is specified in a letter that Titian ostensibly sends to Philip. We don't know for sure because the only, only copy we have of it or the only version we have of it is in the publication, a book where it's published as a famous letter by Titian right. uh, in 1554. So it's, it's, that's, that's the year and it's surely written by... Ludovico Dolce, who was Titian's friend, who was a translator of Ovid, and a man of letters, and like a very prolific writer, and he surely wrote that letter. But you know, with with the understanding that Titian would know the content, he helped Titian with his letters. Mm. Titian was not a natural-born writer; he was he was a visual artist. Yeah. In that letter, Titian specifies to Philip that I'm sending you this picture of Venus and Adonis in compliment to the, to the one I sent you before, the Danai, and you'll be excited because in this picture I'm showing the woman from the opposite side. And that enters into a whole discussion of contemporary aesthetics and, and sort of intellectual discourse around art. Uh, it's in part a reference to the so-called Paragonia debates where intellectuals and artists would de- debate the individual merits of different art forms and where, you know, sculpture could be seen in a round while painting was two-dimensional and so, you know, was one superior to the other. Painting had color, sculpture didn't and, and so on. And the, being able to show a woman from different angles as Titian is doing here is a way of competing with the three-dimensionality of sculpture. Just as Titian, in a way, through his choice of the word poesia, to describe these pictures, which is an established term, it's not something Titian comes up with, it's established, is making a claim for painting to be equal to poetry, which is regarded as a liberal art, whereas painting is still sort of dragging, uh, dragging itself out of his, the, the, the understanding of it as, as artisanal. Right. So there's a paragonia with literature and there's a paragonia with sculpture. Uh, this is the more intellectual side of it. Yeah. I think the more interesting side of it, in a way, which is, again is intellectual to an extent, it's a reference to, there's a different letter that uh, Dolce writes to a Venetian collector where he describes Titian's greatest new, new picture. And in that, he compares that back, that famous back, and he describes you know, how, you know, how wonderfully painted it is. And indeed, it's, it's, it's as finished and as subtle as anything Titian paints in this period. And he specifically describes the, how the, the skin of her buttocks is sort of a press against her seat and so on. And then he goes on to say that this will, this will excite you. you know, this will, and he compares it to the, 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 the story of the Venus of Cnitus, um, the, the sculpture of Venus by Praxiteles, known from Pliny, uh, which was exhibited in the round so you could see it all the way around, and so excited a young man that he masturbated against it. Uh, so he's referring to that, and, and this is not just prurience. This is a way of claiming sup- supremacy in, in art. To do something so, so seemingly real that you get excited about it physically is the mark of a great artist, and that's very important to Venetian aesthetics. Let's move on to Perseus and Andromeda. Yes, so where the two first poesiae. Danai and Venus and Adonis were based on pre-existing compositions. Persis and Andromeda is a new invention. And this is because Titian has a little bit more time now. He has been spending the last few years 
serving a lot of different patrons, not just Philip, but his father Charles and the extended Habsburg family, mostly doing portraits, but also some religious pictures for them. And that has to to the point where he's so overworked that there are rumors going around the Spanish court that he's died. (laughs) Um, He hasn't, that those rumors are overstated. Uh, But he's really overworked, and I think he's really sick of painting portraits, although he's one of the great portraitists of, of, of all time. He's, I think he's sick of it by this point. And now he has a little bit more time. And he's painting a monster. Yeah, he's really, you know, he's going all out here. You know, he's, and he really wants this to be the most impressive picture he's ever painted, I think. You know, you really get that sense from looking at it and from looking at what's underneath the surface because this is a composition that was changed again and again. He made many, many changes on the canvas while working on it, trying to get it right, moving the figure of Andromeda, this beautiful, that ends up in this beautiful balletic pose on the left. She was at one time on the right. She had her arms up rather than one of them down. You know, the, she's... A, her hips were turned differently and then getting that very complex foreshortened pose of Perseus right uh, it's indecipherable what's underneath it, but there are many changes to that figure uh, in, the, in the initial lay-in of the figure once he starts painting it he has it down more or less he changes the position of the arms and the shield a bit and the, the, the sword mm-hmm. um, but here he's trying to do something that he's not ultimately maybe that comfortable with is com- uh, storytelling in depth and this is something that's kind of new in Venice because there's a young upstart named Tintoretto oh. who is great at these very kinetic compositions with figures flying through the air and often tells his story in, in depth, has a lot of depth of field, where Titian generally is a storyteller sort of who uses the surface, the, the, the front, the, the, the foreground, as almost sort of freeze-like type of of composition, you will have a lot of atmospheric recession and landscape and so on, but it's not the actual stories and happens in the foreground. And here he's struggling a bit with that, I would say. Uh, nevertheless, he comes up with a very sort of psychologically interesting picture. At this point in the sequence is one of the enduring themes of the rest of the sequence, which is water. Yeah. And he's a great painter of water. He's a great painter of spoon. Yeah. There's yeah, an extraordinary yeah, yeah, bubbling yeah, yeah. Uh, sea from which this, this monster is emerging. It's quite curious, actually, that, and this is something that uh, generations of critics and scholars have talked about, why Venetian artists don't paint the sea. <laughs> you know, they paint the land, they don't paint the sea, and there are various explanations for that. And even Titian, there isn't that much before this. Mm. You know, he's starting to paint the sea here. Obviously, he paints streams and rivers and so on, and water pouring from, you know, that kind of thing. He's in, always interested in water. But this is really his first sea piece, and... It's very dramatic. And, yeah, indeed, you know, it gives him a license to get really expressive. He's starting to, I think, figure out what he, how far he can take painting with this picture. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's quite damaged, so we can't quite appreciate just how stunning this would have been when it was... But compositionally, I mean, the, you, you know, you're talking about how, you know, Tintoretto's kind of almost laid down a gauntlet for Titian, yeah. and he's really risen. I mean, you know, this, the tumbling figure of Perseus, as you say, the balletic pose of yeah. Andromeda, it's, 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 it's an extraordinarily dynamic composition. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and there's a very interesting contrast between the grace and composure of Andromeda who's chained, she's restrained, and this sort of clumsy, slightly possibly bumbling aspect, violent and chaotic aspect to Perseus, the man, Mm. who does not seem to be in control. Uh, She seems to be much more in control, even though she's the one who's not free. And I think that's interesting. 
we've got a bit of audio from Mary Beard talking on the film that accompanies this exhibition about looking at these pictures, which do suggest violence to women. Yeah. We're not just suggest, they depict yeah, violence yeah. To, towards women. Yeah. Um, can you say something about, you know, was this something, which, you know, we think about this as a sort of titillating group yeah. of paintings. What would the interpretation of the, this, this imagery of violence have been in, in the 16th century? It's very hard to say. What contemporary descriptions we have do emphasize the titillation, like written descriptions. And that is clearly part of what these pictures do and are meant to do. They are meant to be exciting to the male viewer. And, you know, a picture like this, you know, there's almost, almost a sort of BDSM right, <laughs> quality yeah, to the way she's yeah, yeah, chained and displayed to us. So there's definitely, that's definitely part of the intention. However, Titian is somebody who never seems content with that kind of just, just operating on one level. And if you think about Titian's career, the first documented paintings by Titian are the frescoes he did in Padua in the Scoletta del Santo. It's for meeting hall. This is in 1511, the first document. It's not the first pictures by him, the first documented. It's for meeting hall that only admitted men. All three pictures are about women done wrong. And indeed, like two of them, women subjected to violence. And where the, the sympathy is clearly with the woman. And so one, you know, even though we don't have contemporary descriptions explaining this, one should not ignore the evidence of what we see. And I think this continues throughout his career. He is somebody with, as an artist at least, has an enormous amount of empathy and, and places his empathy with certain figures in the, in the compositions and often with the women. Because she is struggling. I mean, and, and looking at her face is a, is a face of torment. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she, the, the thing is, she, is being, she has been uh, subjected to this. I mean, the, the torment of having to be chained to a rock and the monster coming for her, you know, through no fault of her own. She's offered up as a sacrifice to Neptune, the sea god. But also the fact that Perseus, before he... Perseus falls in love with her, as Ovid describes it. He comes by, he happens to be flying by, he sees her and falls in love with her. And then he decides, I'll save her, I'll kill this monster that's encroaching upon her. But before he does that, he goes and secures her hand in marriage with her parents. Right. So Titian is getting at that, part, that aspect of the story too. You know, she's being... This is an arranged marriage that she has no say in. And that was quite normal at the time. There was nothing unusual about that. But Ovid's story already suggests a discomfort there. Uh, and I think Titian builds on that discomfort. You know, and that's why she's restrained and he's free. And way he's, he's the one who's really driven by his desires and his irrationality much more than she is. And I think that's, what the, that's the interesting tension for me in this picture. We'll be back discussing the other four poesia after this. Belgian artist Léon Spilliert has not always received the public attention in Britain that his talents deserve. Exhibitions in London this spring at the Royal Academy, the first ever UK retrospective of the artist's work, and at Bonhams are set to redress this lack of exposure and to place his oeuvre alongside that of the foremost symbolist and expressionist artist. 
The Bonhams exhibition, Leon Spilliert, A Discerning Eye, runs from the 20th to the 26th of March at 101 New Bond Street, London, and consists of 12 works, all gathered from private collections in Belgium. It spans the whole of Spilliert's career, from the sombre and anguished paintings of his early period to the later, brighter and more optimistic works. Bonham's head of Impressionist and modern art, Hannah Foster, said Leon Spilliert's work resonates deeply with modern concerns. He was one of the earliest artists to embrace subjectivity and explore themes of alienation, existential torment and loneliness. A 1920 work by Spilliert also features in Bonham's Impressionist and modern art sale in London later in March. To read Adrian Locke's story about Leon Spilliert in Bonham's magazine, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. So now let's head back to the National, where we begin by discussing Diana and Acteon and Diana and Callisto. So paintings four and five in the sequence, you've hung them close together on a single wall. There are lots of reasons for this, aren't there? So first of all, let's talk about the subject matter. Um, They both feature Diana. Yeah. So at this point, Titian has sent the... Uh, in 1556, he sends the presses Andromeda to Philip, and it's in Brussels. And then it gets taken back to Spain. And by this point, Philip has negotiated a very important peace agreement with France, and he is, has taken a new queen, the princess of France, and has set up court in Toledo. So he's returning to Spain. And Titian, in the meantime, is working on these pictures. And uh, it takes him a long time to finish them. And he's working on them concurrently. It's two pictures he clearly meant as a pair. Like we, we discussed before how... Uh, Venus and Adonis and Danae were complement of, in Titian describes them as, as complements to each other, as, as pendants he takes that idea further here with two pictures that are clearly meant to be seen together the landscape that encloses these figures continues across the surface when you hang them the way we've done here so that the stream in front has this bow shape in front, uh, continuing across and the, the hill that goes, that that, sort of, that, that you see uh, ra- rising towards the right in, in Diana and Action, then comes down on the other, at the other end in Diana and Callisto. So I think these are definitely meant to be seen together, and, and almost sh- certainly in this configuration, although what is slightly strange is that they are painted as if lit from opposite directions. And that is surprising, because usually Titian does that on purpose. And he does that with reference to where they're going to hang. And as we've discussed earlier, we the impression we have is that there was no specific destination for these pictures. It is not unthinkable that by the, this point, when Philip is setting up court in Toledo, he is thinking of a space and has told Titian in some document that we've lost that this is what he wants. It's possible. We don't know. But it is clearly remarkable that they're lit from opposite sides. Yeah. All the other poesia are lit from the left, but this Diane Callisto is lit from the right. And that would indicate, if we are to accept that they are meant to be seen together in this way, Diana and Acton on the left, Diana and Callisto on the right, that they would be between two windows in a very large room. Right. Because if you put the window between them or put them opposite, opposite walls, you lose that effect of continuity across them. We don't know. <laughs> now, these are, these are interesting in a way because... Diana is the violent protagonist in, the, in both these stories, essentially. So in Diana and Acteon, we're seeing a moment when Acteon is walking through the forest and, uh, and comes across Diana and her nymphs bathing. And then you have Diana and Callisto, in which Diana is banishing a nymph who, through no fault of her own, who has been raped, uh, uh, is pregnant. So 
here Diana turns the violent gaze onto yeah. different yeah. onto these different people. And I think Titian is, is is going even further. He's pushing further in terms of the complexities of what he's trying to explore, complexity of identity, of of again emotional relation of power and, and so on in these pictures. And it is about two youthful innocents subjected to the brutality of fate in a way, in the in the in the shape of Diana. It could also be the brutality of people who have more power than you. It it could be both. It could be whatever you want it to be in that sense. These pictures are open for interpretation. But I think the theme of innocence and the the place of empathy, the, the person we empathize with, is very clear in both of them. And they're really, they get, we're getting really into really dark territory here. He, he gets increasingly dark in his, even though there's still a lot of humor and a lot of entertainment, there's a yapping dog in the front and, you know, and it's, it's, there's a lot of, it's a beautiful landscape, there's a lot to enjoy, you know, and all these, these naked, naked women, you know, the, that clearly would have appealed to the audience that he was working for, <laughs> Philip and his, and whoever would see these pictures. Um, he is sort of here making us think about, reflect on the implications of looking and of being aroused or desiring something and how those implications can be violent and horrible to others or, to our, and, or disastrous to ourselves. Would, would Philip have understood that kind of subtle messaging in the work, do you think? <laughs> do we know about his I don't know. I don't even know the, uh, to what extent, like, Titian formulated these ideas for himself, but it, that seems to be what's going on. You know, mm, it's clear. very difficult to say. We don't have anybody who wrote that this is what these pictures are about. Uh, but it seems, at least in this, in this day, when you look at them, that's, that's pretty much what, you know, that's very, they're very powerfully about that. Um, they could be about a, any number of other things too, of course. Like it's 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 hard to say. I mean, they're also about man's place in nature and how man is like nature. Uh, how because these remember these are all taken from the or mostly taken from the metamorphosis and the change of shape. And the, the underlying theme of that is that man, like nature, constantly changes, is mutable. Uh, when we die, we we rot, and 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 plants spring forth, and animals come. You know, and, and Ovid describes this, and I think this appeals to Titian. And, and it makes him, makes him think even more profoundly about placing figures in landscape and, and depicting here decaying structures, man-made structures, de- decaying in nature, in very lush nature, and so on. So that's a theme, too. And is this this human nature, uh, which is part of the greater continuum of nature, involves our drives and our desires and so on? And I think that's what he's looking at here. I mean, and, and also, you know, Titian is, a, is very old, especially for that time at this yeah. stage. You know, he's, he's, is he in his 70s yet? Yes, broadly, you know, on his yeah. way to his yeah. 70s. Yeah. And he, so he must have been well, conscious of his own mortality, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think he was. Yeah, it's the kind of insight you gain with age, I think, is, is it comes into this, of course. We know that he's concerned about securing his future, the future of his workshop, his, his children, at this time, and is tr- he's trying to set up his workshop in a way that it can continue after his death, and c- to hold on to the patronage of Philip. It starts happening a bit later, it's mostly into the 60s that we really get that, uh, but that, that is definitely a concern of his. He, it ends, he ends up living for a very long time. He, now one of the striking things about Diana and Acteon is that at the furthest right of the picture you have a black figure, an African figure. Can you say something about that? What, what's the significance of, uh, of, of this figure in the picture? It's, it's extremely interesting, and it, it, it tells us a lot of things about how Titian thought and how he, how he worked. She's a late addition 
to the composition. Through infrared and X-ray, we can tell that she was originally white and she was positioned differently. At some stage, at a very advanced stage of painting, he decided to change her. And what is interesting when you look at her and compare her with the nymphs, the other, the other female figures, is that they're all sort of generic in, in, in appearance. They're sort of beautiful, generic women. They're very interesting in terms of their psychology, but their, their physiognomy is kind of generic. The black woman is very specific, and I think she's a real person that Titian got interested in. Somebody he hired to model for him, and he probably, at a late stage, did a, a portrait drawing of her, or a head study of her face, and then inserted her into the composition. Why he did this, there are various things we can guess at. Uh, traditionally, art historically, people always talked about how she, she makes a, an interesting contrast in terms of the tone of her skin with Diana's very white skin, and that may be part of it just like her striped dress is very different from the state of undress of the others. She's clearly a diff in a different role to the others. She seems to be a maidservant. She's dressed while the others are undressed, and she's helping Diana. And that mirrors contemporary society in Venice. There was a fairly substantial population of people of black African descent in Venice who often worked in menial roles. They were often servants and so on. And but some rose to sort of greater social prominence. We know, of course, famously, uh, Shakespeare's Othello is, is, is about a person of African descent who becomes very prominent in the military, and that was also the case. So here, what we're seeing is a black maidservant, and that was, it was very prestigious in the northern Italian courts. This is not in Venice, this is in the, the, court, the courts of northern Italy to have dark-skinned servants, and you all often see that in portraits, including portraits by Titian, that people depict themselves with a black uh, servant or page or something like that. In Venice, this was because it's not Venice is a republic. It doesn't have nobles. And I think there was less of a culture of that kind of thing. But amongst sex workers, they replicated that model. Uh, so the, the, the sort of higher level courtesans would replicate the model of having a, a, a black maidservant. And Which, since does that then suggest something about the figure who is depicted as Diana? Well, I mean, I think this is, this, yes. I mean, so Venice was like the, the, had the biggest community of sex workers in, in Europe. Uh, and Titian clearly was familiar with it. And I think he got his models from there. I mean, that's, that's, that's been a theory. And, and actually, we have some documentation of it that early in his career he did use, you know, you want somebody to pose in the nude, and Titian pioneered the female nude. It was not something that was, that was a tradition for, at least the, the realistic female nude done from the live model. And I think that's how he got his models, is that he, he paid uh, sex workers to, um, to pose for him because it's not something you could get anybody else to do. So I think there's a, an allusion to contemporary society here. Um, that's not made evident, but is there, you know, and, uh, and, and that, that is fascinating too. Titian is an observer of life, even though he's, this is a fantasy, it's, it's close to life in other ways. We're in front of the Rape of Europa now, and this is one of the two works that, that you would say are in the best condition of the yeah. group. Yeah, it's, it's in remarkably good condition, despite having, you know, travelled quite a lot in its time. It is the, pic it's the last of the poesia that Titian sends to Philip. And we have to remember the poesia part of a larger commission that also involves religious paintings. And this is the last of that 
agreement they had to petition. To, we don't know exactly what the agreement was, but it was to provide a number of pictures of Titian's choosing, some mythological, some religious. And this one, he's sent to Madrid, where Philip has set up court in 1561. He sends this to Madrid, 1562, and describes it as the sujello, the seal to the deal, so to speak. It's the culmination, it, it's the end point of their collaboration. He will then after this, pursue further collaboration and work for Philip and to his death, actually. But it's the, it's the closure of their deal. And, it, and in that sense, in, the, in the, him using that word, we get the sense that he's, he thinks this is the high point. It's difficult, uh, it's, it's difficult not to agree with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it is an incredible picture. And, and the fact that it's in so, such good condition is great, too. And it means you can, you can go up and look at it close. In a way, you unfortunately can't at the Gardner Museum, where it belongs, uh, because it, it's, it hangs up high there. So it's, a, it's harder. So, so this is really an opportunity to stick your nose in it and get a sense of Titian's brushwork and layering of color and to expressive effect. So what's going on in the painting? So this is the abduction of another princess uh, by Jupiter who's, taken this, who's fallen in lust with her. Uh, she's called Europa, and Jupiter transforms himself into a bull to get her confidence, and she thinks the bull's, bull is so beautiful and cute that she eventually climbs on its back. And then the moment she does that... Jupiter the bull takes off into the water because it's there on the seaside. Takes off into the water and takes her to Crete and she and rapes her. Uh, it's another rape scene. And so it's, it's, a, it's a really horrible story. Uh, in, and, and Tish, but, but Titian tries to get at, I think, what this means. You know, like, what are the, what are the emotions? How do, you, how, do you, how do we get there? And Europa looks away from us. Her... her her head is in shade, and this is a motif that was favored by Titian since the very early parts of his career. He always loved to put his protagonist in shade. So we can't really see her face. We can see her body. It's, it's splayed out in front of us slightly uncomfortably, but it's, you know, so there's, there's that, that factor of you know, looking at, again at a, a female body. The bull, in the meantime, catches our eye. Mm. And we look into the, those eyes, and initially it's funny and kind of cute, you know. You can see why she was, you know, thought it was a cute ball. It looks like it's giving us a knowing look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so is the little Cupid down on the left, which is sort of looking up, sort of very indecently at her from its perch on a dolphin in the water. Yeah. So that's, it's funny, you know. Um, but the more you look at that ball, the more frightening, at least to me, it becomes. It seems inhuman. It does something unfeeling about it. The sort of red around the eye yeah. is really dramatic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And there's that horrible fish that comes up under her feet, you know, from the water with spikes and so on. There's, a, there's, a, there's an edge to this. And Can we imagine Titian going to the Rialto fish market? Yes. I, that's, I think it's some kind of monkfish that he's, you know... The dolphin is, a, is a, sort of a model, sort of like typical sort of stylized dolphin that doesn't look anything like the real thing. But that, that fish looks kind of real. Um, so anyway... What Titian, I think, is getting at here is that, you know, like the, the, the intensity of the color, the, the, the way that the moisture hangs in the air, we can feel the moisture on her skin, the way her skin ripples as she's being carried, uh, that exclamation point of the red drapery, all that is sort of passionate and, and, and ecstatic, and there's sort of a very ecstatic sort of aspect to this. But at the same time, it's, it's sort of... Um, it's, it's going further into something horrific and awful. I mean, you know, it's a rape scene. So 
I think what he's trying to get at here is the, is the very sort of blurred boundary between ecstasy and horror and how something that can be wonderful one moment can be turned into violence. That's, for me, what that perch suggests, that uncomfortable perch, which he's almost sort of rolling off the, the back of the bull. So once again, we're dealing with the complexity of desire, of attraction, and the, the power dynamics in emotional relationship and sexual relationships. I think that's, all of that is here. Can we talk about the painting of it? Because it seems to me that Gabriele made the point earlier on that these are not just visually enticing works, that they create an, an, a much more complex sensory atmosphere than that, that Titian's painterly effects really are all-consuming. They're almost yeah. Uh, immersive. Yeah. I mean, I think he's, he's, uh, this is something that he's skilled at from the, his er, like, early career. He's, he uses visual means to engage the totality of our senses. Tactility, primarily. You know, he has these tactile surfaces. It becomes more and more evidence, like textures, uh, the sensuality of skin. I mean, he loves flesh and painting flesh, especially female flesh. flesh. And so the tactility of that, but also here you feel the moisture of the air. Uh, you can... And the, 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 the relative coolness of the water, like the, the, the sensuality of having that, that drapery drag through the water. So there's that the real t- sense of tactility here. Uh, and I think beyond that sound, you know, there's a lot of sound in his pictures, there's a lot of drama. You know, so he's a synesthetic painter in that sense. Like one thing leads to the other in terms of the, our senses. And that comes through in his painting. I mean, this, and this is really, you know, there's a contemporary description of... of um, painting like this by, by Vasari, who's visited Titian's studio and said Titian's painting in this period um, looked like, you know, a bit of like a, a mess if you look on close. You can't decipher them. And then you step back and you realize that there's a meaning to, to, the, to the looseness of the paint. Everything comes together and looks wonderful. And so the way that Titian engages us physically, again, it comes back to what we talked about with Venus and Adonis, about the physical engagement sort of makes stimulating, but also the way we have to act with the picture to understand it walk back and forth physically and appreciate the fact that this is painting, this is not reality, it's not an illusion of reality, it's an interpretation and it's Titian's interpretation, we can see his brushstrokes we can appreciate his choices and this is where Titian is such an important example to European art ever since You know, he, he lays down and consolidates the idea of painting as self-expression and it happens in these pictures more than almost anything else he does we're standing in front of the death of Acton and I have to say this beautiful light, natural light, has just fallen onto it because we're in, we have natural light and it's just suddenly almost this sort of golden glow That's around incredible. the picture. Wonderful. Um, this wasn't sent to Philip, this picture. Uh, it's the culmination of an earlier episode in the series. Tell us what's going on. So this is the, the fate of Acton. We, the picture we saw earlier had Acton stumbling upon Diana and seeing her naked, and the punishment for that unforgivable transgression of which he's completely innocent is that he's turned into a stag. She turns him into a stag, and his hounds tear him apart. And that's what we see here. And then Titian, for good measure, has added Diana herself, firing her bow at him, sort of delivering a coup de grace, maybe. <laughs> and this picture... So when he delivered the, the, the two pictures, the Diana pictures, he wrote and said, I am now going to start work on the Europa and... Acton torn apart by his hounds. So the Europa in this picture, we probably started at 1559. Also, another indication is that they're on the same canvas weave. 
So they may be from the same bolt of canvas. It's not impossible. We can't prove it, but it's, uh, the weave is, is the same. For some reason, he decided not to finish it at that point and didn't ever send it to Philip. And he said, as you say, you know, that's it. The series is over. I can retire now, essentially, didn't he? The, the well, he didn't want to retire. He wanted more work from Philip, but he was, their agreement was, was, was uh, finalized by that. Um, but this picture he never sent to Philip, and he clearly picked it up later and, and painted it you know, to a very high, high state of completion. Finish is, is a more complica- complicated <laughs> word when you talk about this because this is really Titian's late aesthetic where, and it, it actually it, it's present in the poesia themselves for Philip, uh, the fact that he will leave a painting in a variety of states of finish across the surface. Something can be quite highly worked, like her head. Other parts, like Actium's legs, are just suggested. Mm. And for Titian, this is fine because that's his creative choice. Again, it's about calling attention to his choices. And for him, it's expression. It's not like obtaining some kind of ideal state of of finish. It's about what it expresses. And he can really end it at any time. Beyond a certain point, he can end, he can stop painting and say, this is it. And that's a very modern notion of painting. And, you know, which we, you know, get into the, uh, in subsequent centuries, that becomes part of a painterly aesthetic. And so this painting, you know, this is the only painting that shows an actual physical transformation. They're all, all the stories have those in them, but this is the one that really shows it. Action is halfway transformed into a stag here while he's being assaulted by his hounds. And he's almost merging with his surroundings, with the, with the landscape around him, which is a very dramatic sort of, it's roiled by wind and the water is... is, is, is is, is agitated and the dogs are running almost as if in motion blur and there's a bush in front which is just like a like yellow sort of an explosion of yellow um, and I think you know we get, we're getting back to this theme of man being part of nature and the transformations of nature also happening in us and it's expressed through paint here it's expressed through the exec- execution he's gotten to a point where, where he's confident and has discovered a means of doing that and this is transformative for European painting. So the greatest ever painter? You spend a lot of your time with 16th century yeah. Italian painting, which is some of the greatest painting yeah. ever. So what do you think? Where's, where does Titian rank? Well, he's up there. He's definitely up there. I think it's, very, it's obviously an impossible question. <laughs> you know, like, are you, are you, are you sort of going to start denigrating, like, Van Eyck? You know? <laughs> no. <laughs> or Velasquez, who learned so much from Titian, but is... Like, because he was actually managing these pictures in Philip, Philip mm. IV's collection uh, some generations later. Um, and he learned a lot, a new Titian better than anybody, but was such a great artist himself that he could use that, those lessons for his own purposes. Which is, incidentally, is going to be one of the exciting things about seeing this exhibition in the Prado, because there, these paintings will be paired with Velasquez and other paintings from the collection, also Rubens, for example. Mm who copied these pictures and studied them intensely as well. There are many great painters. Uh, it's, it's well, maybe, maybe we'll let the listeners come and see this <laughs> exhibition and decide for themselves. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matthias. You're welcome. Titian, Love, Desire, Death is at the National Gallery in London until the 14th of June and at the Scottish National Gallery in Edinburgh from the 11th of July to the 27th of September. As Matthias says, some of the group will be shown in the exhibition Mythological Passions at the Prado Museum in Madrid from the 20th of October to the 10th of January 2021. And then the full set will travel to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston from the 11th of February to the 9th of May next year. 
And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to the Art Newspaper at our website. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. And please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. Our producers are Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also our editing whiz. Thanks to Gabriele and Matthias and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.